Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Investigate beautifully detailed scenes of the 1920s, finding out what happened to her or your in the game, sister. With hundreds of mind-teasing puzzles, the next clue is always within reach. Search for hidden objects from the parlours of New York to the sidewalks of Paris. Each chapter uncovers a collection of dazzling hidden object spectacles for you to solve, and I've had a lot of fun. Currently on chapter 7, making progress little by little, tapping away on my phone to get all the puzzle pieces in place. While searching for the murderer, or whatever happened to your sister, you get to decorate your own island with gardens and buildings and chat and play with other Others by joining a detective club. It's a lot of fun and very social. I play while I'm on the train. It keeps me active between my journeys to London and I love the time limits that are pushing me to find those clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Just now I've become a mom and... I'm for the first time thinking about what it would feel like to be Meredith's mom and to lose a daughter that way and or to be my mom and to almost lose a daughter that way. The whole thing is fucked up. It's Amanda Knox. You might, particularly if you're in Britain or Italy, know her as the murderous femme fatale who was imprisoned for killing her English flatmate Meredith Kircher in a sex game while studying abroad in Italy. You might know her, if you've spent time researching the case, as the subject of one of the most egregious and explosive wrongful conviction cases in living memory. But one thing's for sure, you know her. Or at least you think you do. I remember hearing the news of the murder of Meredith Kircher in 2007. It struck a chord with me in particular because I studied at the same place as her, the University of Leeds, and I was preparing to go on my own study abroad trip to France, just as she had done in Italy. She was found dead in an apparent sex game, the windows smashed in and cuts to her chin and throat, It was gruesome and shocking to return to for 20-year-old American Amanda, who'd been out with her boyfriend, Raphael, the night before. She didn't actually see the scene, but alerted police when Meredith didn't respond to calls to open her locked bedroom door. This was, of course, a living hell for Meredith's family, every parent's worst nightmare. She went to Italy on a study abroad trip and never came back. A man with a history of burgling houses with a knife had broken in during the night and killed her. His DNA was all over the bedroom. What followed is one of the most remarkable abuses of police and media power imaginable and eight years of torment for Amanda and her then-boyfriend, Raffaele. Sexist tropes and public shaming assassinated her character on all sides and made her into what the world wanted to see, Foxy Noxy. 
Religious prosecutors painted her as immoral because she'd slept with a few men, as if that were unusual for the student. Her private diaries were leaked to the press, her life a spectacle for a world convinced of her guilt because she didn't act in a way that fitted our sexist idea of hysterical women at the time of the murder. She spent four years in an Italian prison, while Raffaele had six months of his term in solitary confinement. Amanda was sentenced to 26 years and prepared to remain there until her 50s. Eventually, she was acquitted, led out from the courts between angry mobs who still believed her guilty, screaming at her, threatening at her, baying for blood. She still receives those kinds of messages from trolls online, and she recently spoke out about the use of her name and story in Hollywood movies. When might she have her name back? Amanda has just become a mother, which gives her a fresh perspective on the tragic incident that befell Meredith. She becomes emotional in this episode while speaking about it. Otherwise, I find her, six years after being acquitted and 14 years after the murder, engaging, friendly, kind and fun. She's getting her life and her name back. She has a successful podcast with her husband, Christopher Robinson. It's called Labyrinths and you should check it out. It's about people getting lost and then found again. There's a link in the show notes as well as to her and Chris's Twitter profiles. If you're here for the first time, please do subscribe to On The Edge with Andrew Gold and share with friends. They probably want to hear this, right? Anyway, here's Amanda Knox. There's like a lot of confidence to call your husband Boo in front of uh, someone. Oh, really? Is it yeah. a thing? <laughs> I, I want, well, maybe because it's a really American. Is if it was like Babe or something, I, like we'd say that as well. But I think Boo is very American, so like my British ears mm. really heard that. Yeah, so I'd be like, you know, sugar buns or something. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like what? It's a little too intimate. <laughs> can you do? Can you do a British accent? Um, I would probably offend everyone who <laughs> listens to you if I tried. Yeah. I remember doing a British accent once for a um, high school play, and I got nominated for an award for that play. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you must be good at it. I, I can imagine why you don't want to do it. But I, 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 yeah, I do a lot of accents and I'm really bad at them. And it's the one thing I wish I could do. <laughs> I think I can, I can do John Ronson. I've been doing him accidentally whenever I've like, introduced him or said his name, like John Ronson. Yeah. And then whenever he says, it's like this episode by me, John Ronson. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I love you so much. Oh my God. <laughs> I just want to sit here and do accents now. Oh. <laughs> but you're good at like stuff like that, aren't you? Because you, I, I remember, and we'll get into lots of serious stuff, of course, but like one thing watching your documentary, Manda Knox on Netflix that I picked up on was you were reading harry potter in german right mm -hmm. and you mm -hmm. speak italian as well i mean you're a bit of are you a, a proper linguist i my husband definitely thinks so i um i really enjoy languages i've grown up you know my mom was born in germany so i grew up with the sense that oh. there are other cultures and other languages and they're all really interesting and, and worth exploring and i love how I love that shift that happens in your mind when you go from 
translating in your brain to just speaking another language in your brain. That is a really cool shift that I've experienced before. Um, and I just love it. I, I think it's a super fun way to be creative and to be silly because ultimately when you're learning another language, you kind of have to just be willing to sound like an idiot around people <laughs> and just like, accept it and and own it um, and be willing to make um, interesting mistakes that um, I remember there were numerous times that I accidentally invented something in the Italian language because I was trying to express something and I didn't have the right word for it. Um, like uh, a good example of this was um, I invented the word conchalina because okay, this is going to be about a vagina, isn't it? No. <laughs> no? Oh, sorry. Con um, concha in Spanish is, is vagina. <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't know that. Um, yeah. yeah, no. The the fun word for vagina that I heard in Italy was patata, just potato. And I was like, it doesn't look anything like a potato. But <laughs> conchalina, <laughs> conchalina yeah. was, I knew the word for roommate was coinquilina. And mm. co meaning with. So yeah. I was in a cell, che and so con Celina, my cellmate. It's not an actual Italian word. I just said it one day, and um, someone was like, that was very clever of you. That's not a word, though. <laughs> That's more like you'd have had more luck when, in German doing that, wouldn't you? Because you yes. could just put all these things just together. Just smash words yeah. together, yeah. My my girlfriend is Argentine, and I so I thought the kind of mistake you were going to say is like because I was talking to her family, and her family are all very serious. I don't know if they listen. To, well, they don't speak that much. Oh no, I think her, her cousin does listen. The, the cousin will know that her dad can be very very serious and scary and okay. stuff. And I said like voy a ponerla somewhere. I'm going to put it somewhere. Ponerla, mm. but ponerla means fuck her, as in my girlfriend. And that was like she just went completely quiet and just looked at me. And I was like, what, what, what? <laughs> just, uh, <laughs> oh. Isn't that funny how just like those casual everyday words also can just mean having sex? And it's just that's all languages do that, though. Just yeah. the word to do. Like, I'm going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, know? that's what it was. That's the, that was the problem, especially in, I guess, Spanish and Italian. I don't want to offend any Spanish or Italian native speakers, but I bet there are more uh, um, metaphors and things, don't you think? Well, and if you say you want to eat a potato, suddenly you're in trouble. <laughs> exactly. And that concha one I said before, concha is just a shell. But in Argentina... Okay, yeah, yeah. Like a conch, yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. How was it with John Ronson? He was on your podcast, right? Yes, he was. And he's also very kindly, you know, talked to me on the phone at various times and given me, oh. um, you know, thoughts about uh, just writing and journalism ethics and and all of that he's given me some i've reached out to him behind the scenes to ask questions about like hey do you think this person is a trustworthy person to talk to oh. or whatever it is um and honestly like i invited him to my wedding <laughs> he was at my wow. wedding <laughs> like he's a he's someone who i um I like to say I have like a professional crush on because I just really respect the way that he goes about his business, which is like, you know, investigative journalism, but with a very self-aware, um, humorous bent. And I just love that. That That is my perfect form of, of uh, consuming media, I guess. <laughs> it's funny you say that because I... 
um, said to him, do you consider yourself a hu humorist? And he said, he waited a while and he said, uh, no, no, I, I wouldn't say. <laughs> In the you most know. like hilarious way possible. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then afterwards, I thought, I'm sure he is a bit, because I think there is that, I think that journalism you're referring to, especially that self-deprecative journalism can be very funny. Um, and it, it can go like really far one way, like Sasha Baron Cohen, it's comedy. Oh, you sure. know, that's, that's more comedy than journalism. And then you've got yeah. John Ronson, it's more journalism. And I went on his website and it says, John Ronson, humorist and journalist. <laughs> And I was like, oh, you said no. And I, oh, but too late now. Oh, did you oh, ask him about that. me? Um, you know, I didn't. Um, you should have. I just assumed <laughs> that you were cool. I'm not. <laughs> I'm horrible. Don't. Oh, no, really? No, Why? No. Why do you say that? No, I'm not. You know what it is? It's, it is that stuff. You can't, you can't ever... British people... I mean, Ricky Gervais says this about the difference between British and American because he, he obviously lived in America a long time. He said, in America, mm -hmm. you're allowed to talk yourself up. And he quite mm -hmm. enjoys that. And in the UK, if you do that, as soon as you do that, there's like a queue of people, a line of people, I should say, like waiting to tear you down and be like, oh, you so... look at you, Mr. Big Shot. So, huh. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I'm not yeah. a good guy. I'm a bad guy and a bad journalist. That's what we have to say. Oh, I'm sorry. That doesn't sound very <laughs> affirming. <laughs> yeah, but I don't really mean it. Deep down, I think I'm a wonderful journalist. Are you a journalist? Do you think, is that what you would classify yourself as? Yes, in the sense that um, I am invested in other people's true stories. And um, I like to what I do professionally today is I um, attempt to tell true stories in an ethical, entertaining way. Yeah, and I, th I think you do a great job of it. Um, you're a very smart person, switched on. I, I think that's something that, um, you know, at the time of Meredith's murder, it's, that's my segue into into that. Uh, obviously, people talked about your looks a lot, but it was also that intelligence, as a piercing intelligence. Like, there's not much you can say to what can you say to someone who says that to you? I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, what's interesting is like I that's uh, that's interesting that you say that because I feel like I didn't really have a chance, like very very early on, to present myself as intelligent or not intelligent i mean it was a long time before i was even in a courtroom and able to like say something aloud to a in a public way um and address the accusations that were being thrown at me um i feel like for a good year there i was just a blank slate and everyone could just throw whatever ideas and uh project whatever thoughts about me that they wanted to without basically on with no information so well the um, little information we had was that you were studying abroad which already puts you in you know intellectually curious and ambitious and then the more that we did hear you speak of course in the documentary there's just there's, there is an intelligence there that I think people find really interesting but yeah when you're have, doing these interviews and I should say now that I I I I'm as as close as possible to knowing that you had nothing to do with this this murder and and it's mad uh, and I feel so bad for you with with everything that happened. I, it's the it's the Thanks. worst thing. Do do you do these? Does that actually you know what? Does that still mean something to you to hear that? Is it still helpful? Yes, one hundred percent. That means a lot to me. Um, because I don't know. Like honestly, I don't know when I walk into a room if someone is secretly wondering if I'm a murderer or not. 
How does that feel? I mean, I don't feel like I have to convince anyone necessarily. Like it's, I just kind of always in the back of my mind wonder if someone who's sitting across from me is wondering that. Um, I even had like a moment today when I was um, making lunch actually, um, where like I use Marco Polo sometimes. And um, do you know that app? It's basically just oh, no. like, um, uh, it's an app that is like a walkie talkie. It's just, you send sort of videos back and forth with your friends and it keeps a log of them or whatever. And it's really good if you have, if you're like busy and you have your, you know, your hands are full. It's really good for moms, honestly, because they're like juggling child and, you know, groceries and there's like, oh, hey, how's it going? Um, and I was getting lunch ready and I was I'm chopping some tomatoes for lunch. And like a part of me was like, I wonder if the person who's receiving this video is having a weird thought about watching me chop tomatoes. Like, I don't know. I just like I know that like some people have weird thoughts about me and um, and that's not in my control and I try not to like be bothered by it and it doesn't really change like it doesn't you know impact my day-to-day life in a huge way but it does impact my relationship with the world a little bit yeah you were on James McMahon's podcast shame and I only listened to the first few minutes because I never listen to other podcasts because if they ask the same <laughs> questions I ask then I, I then don't want to ask those questions and I want to be able sure. to ask them fresh um, but did he tell you about because he was on my podcast as well to talk about his OCD um, and his worst nightmare is that everybody thinks he's a murderer did he tell you about that no he did not tell me that maybe he thought it was inappropriate to say Interesting. I mean, why would he, I mean, I guess OCD, lots of crazy thoughts go come into your mind and you can get, I guess, like, that's the thing about OCD. You just sort of get fixated on one sort of nightmarish idea and then it just, you, confirmation bias, you see it everywhere. Yeah, that sounds horrible. Yeah. And Ugh. that's the worst, pretty much the worst thing he can think of. He thinks that everybody yeah. will think he's a serial killer or, you know, a killer. So it mm-hmm. just shows that's the worst thing. And that's what you have to live with. But it's been so many years now. But but like you say, you still you still have to go through that. Do, do journalists ever do, with journalists? Do you ever get that impression that they're sort of like, mm-hmm? well, interestingly enough, um, I you know those you know those big name journalists who only have ten minutes to think about you before they're on to their next story. Oh yeah. Like I do get weird vibes from them sometimes where. I will be sitting for an interview and then they'll say something off, you know, off camera that's like, oh, yeah, you know, by the way, I don't really have an opinion about your case as if that's like reassuring to me. (laughs) Like, oh, okay, so you don't have an opinion about whether or not I'm a murderer. Cool. I'm glad that I don't. (laughs) what, (laughs) And I'm like, okay, cool. I'm glad that we're just sitting here like equals then just having a pleasant conversation. (laughs) I don't know. I I feel like when I talk to people um, or at least especially when I talk to people in the seat with the journalist hat on, I want to feel like I've done my homework and I want to feel like I understand where they're coming from. And I don't want to just take this sort of nonchalant, um, not, non-committal attitude towards them. Um, even if I can, I can say like, hey, I'm sitting across from you and I've done a ton of homework and I don't know what to think. It's very different to say that than like, 
oh, by the way, like, whatever, we're just going to be doing this interview now. <laughs> it's bizarre. It, people are just very rude, though, as well. Like, oh, yeah, I just can't be bothered. I mean, you spent three years of your life. Was it three or four years of your life in prison? It was nearly four years. So I was imprisoned at the beginning of November 2007, and I was released in October of 2011. I mean, usually I would get people to sort of go over what happened, that kind of thing. But I think people are so familiar with your story. But but yeah, I mean, those few years in prison, did you think you'd ever get out? Um, sometimes I did and sometimes I didn't. Um, early on, I truly, truly felt like it was just a huge misunderstanding that would get worked out. And I had total faith in the authorities or the adults in the room that somebody would be an adult in the room and figure this out. And um, but after I was convicted, I had to I very, very quickly had an existential shift happen where I realized no one's an adult in the room and I can't actually rely on the truth anymore. And so I just have to make do with what life has given me um, and whatever that may be and not sort of wait for the world to right itself again and instead to just see clearly the world that was around me and try to make life worth living because that was like the ultimate challenge is like it was this place of incredible suffering and limitation and deprivation and I kept sort of waiting to be allowed to get out of that instead of in allowing myself to think like how do I live a life that's worth living under these circumstances so after the conviction, that's when I started to shift my perspective of my role in the world and my role in this very small, cramped space that I was trapped in and um, what it meant that my identity no longer uh, actually represented me, um, that kind of thing. Hey, have you got hair growing on your face? Well, Percentage-wise, it's been estimated by scientists that many of you do, and I'm ashamed to say it, but I'm among them. Hair grows day and night out of my facial follicles, clogging up my pores, stopping me from breathing and giving me a somewhat bedraggled and haggard look. And there was nothing I could do about it. Well, until now. Harry's is a wonderful company that has something called a razor. You can sign up to get your trial pack, which includes a a weighted handle, a five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, and if you're going on holiday like I am, there's also a travel blade cover in there. But what's also interesting about Harry's is they send you shower gel because they're all about shaving in the shower, combining the routine, which is a bit of a life hack. I've taken to brushing my teeth there too, and I'd do these podcasts in the shower if the acoustics weren't so bad. You can't really hear a good shave. So you have to trust me that I've had some of the best shower shaves of my life with Harry's. That's the razor, not a group of men called Harry, though they'd be welcome any time. Support the podcast. I think it helps me in the approval ratings with ads and stuff like that by redeeming the trial set. It's free with £3.95 delivery. Just go to harrys.com slash on the edge. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com slash on the edge. 
Did you make friends in there? I had a few friends. Um, I didn't make friends universally. Um, most of the time I tried to be as invisible as possible. Um, I was the odd one out. I was younger than most of the people in prison. I was um, the most highly educated of the people who were around me. Um, I was one of the few people who had all of my teeth. Um, oh my I was like, it, it, it's like the kinds of people that I was around were people who, I mean, they're across the board because it, there are different things that lead different people to prison. But the vast majority of the women that I was inside with were people who were extremely neglected. Um, who I, I lived with two sisters who never went to school and couldn't read or write and couldn't understand how to read an analog clock. Like it, I had to explain to them once I realized once when talking to them about how far away my home was from where we were, that they didn't realize that the earth was a sphere. Like it was that level of just like disconnect from the sort of social world that I thought everyone had access to. So really it was um, when I made friends, um, I made friends particularly with the one other American woman who I was imprisoned with who was in her 50s when I was in prison. And she kind of took me under her wing. Um, she she was more of a badass than I was. I was definitely a pushover. And she tried to, like, protect me from people who were, who would might take advantage of me. Um, but in the meantime, I also tried to be useful. Um, I tried to... Um, apply like when I was imagining living in that prison cell for 26 years I kept thinking like what is my role here what how am I a part of this community that feels so alien to me and I realized that you know I can read and write and I can translate between English and Italian and that was what I did the vast majority of the time there were a lot of women who weren't even Italian um, a lot of women from like Nigeria or different parts of Africa who um, were, you know, very poor and who had been convinced to be drug mules or prostitutes. And they didn't speak Italian very well, so they didn't understand all of their court documents. And so I helped them navigate the the language barrier a lot of the time. It's a horrible experience. And I am very I'm so sorry you had to go through that. The, the the documentary you know what's it's a funny thing about human nature that um sometimes the things that are uh the most emotional when you're watching so i was watching this i watched a documentary of my mum the other day actually I, I had watched it years ago but i watched mm -hmm. it again and the bit that got me very emotional i felt very sad for you uh, all the sad bits you know that you have to go to prison and obviously sad about meredith and everything yeah. and for some reason the bit that made me cry was uh, when you um, when you when you would what what's the word for it when you're being uh, when you're absolved is that the word oh, yeah um, acquitted yeah acquitted when you're being yeah. let me say that again because I sound like an idiot <laughs> 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 um, yeah the bit that made me emotional was when you'd been acquitted and your family are with you there's a couple of times there's the first time in Italy and then another time in the states and both times I found I was just like crying my eyes out why what do you think that is i don't know if you'll even know what this is what is that about human nature could you take me through those feelings that you had when you when you were acquitted and just being around your family 
Oh, um, yeah, I mean, clearly I, um, I was so <laughs> like, I was also like bawling my eyes out when I was acquitted. Um, as you know, if you look back at old footage, that's what happened. And to such an extent that the people, um, the guards that were around me. So the first time I was acquitted, the time that I was released from prison, I was bawling my eyes out so much that the guards who were accompanying me thought that I misunderstood what the verdict was. And they were explaining to me <laughs> after they took me out of the courtroom, like, no, you don't understand. You won. And I was like, no, no, I I understand. <laughs> I like I understand. I just I heard the the judge say that I'm getting released from prison. Like I, I heard that. Um, I think um there had been this feeling of like holding on and holding my breath um, that I didn't realize even that I was, I didn't realize how much I felt like I was underwater. And and that moment of like, you're being released was like coming to the surface and just like having air again. Um, it was such a shocking feeling. Um, and, you know, clearly the fact that I had been convicted and I no longer had faith that anything would ever work out ever again um, made it so that that moment of arriving for another verdict was supercharged for me because I knew I knew how badly it could go. And I didn't. And I was like arriving at that place sort of preparing myself to be devastated and trying to like hold myself together to not be broken by the experience because I knew how hard it hurt me the first time I was convicted and then to hear the other thing like just the like this this complete release and and access like just and my family was crying too and like we were all crying because it was this feeling of not having to fight anymore. Like you, when you have your guard up and your fight or flight, like that that feeling of like, oh, I can I can let go. And all of that pain that I've been holding on to no longer has the floodgate up. I can now just sort of release that pain like that. It was that mixture of like devastation and relief. Um, and... And then, of course, interestingly enough, I was still on trial for another four years without, you know, yeah, that was a whole other thing. But that moment, like, it's a, it was a very, very real thing to feel like I didn't have to be strong for myself in the same way anymore. Did you get ill after that? Because I've always found, you know, like when you've got exams, obviously this is like a hundred times stronger than that, but <laughs> which is why I imagine, you know, when you've, you're like stressed and, and then finally it's like, oh, I'm all done. I always get ill, like like a cold or something. Oh, interesting. Um, I don't remember getting a cold. What I do remember is that I was not hungry. I, w I, I couldn't eat for like a week. And I, I attributed it to I'm going from a very, very limited environment where I'm like in the same cell with the same concrete walls for four years straight. And then suddenly I'm like 
in a world where there's trees and children and sunlight and, and darkness and grass under my feet and lots of people talking to me. And like I, I sort of attributed it to overload. Like I had just been like suddenly an adrenaline rush and like taking in too much information. And so I couldn't really I was like processing too much information and I just couldn't I like my appetite didn't come back for a good week. Um which was funny because, of course, like as soon as I get home, my family just wants to feed me cake and sushi and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, I, I can't even sleep. I can't even eat. I just need oh. to sort of like sit here and stare at a wall for a second because I have not spoken to people that I love for more than an hour at a time for four years. And so, in English as well. Like and in English as well. I kept like I kept falling into Italian without realizing it. And my family had to be like, Amanda, English. Um, and I forgot words in English and I had to remember how to like shift my brain again. Do you think um, you were, there's that Gladwellian thing, you know, w were you convicted on on not showing the right physical uh, gestures at the time of the murder? Um, I'm, you know, I don't know. There's been a lot of speculation about why I was convicted when there was no evidence and i think you have to go back to before the investigators really had any evidence like in those first few days before i was ever arrested and even accused and i think that there was a very different thing that was happening after i was accused and after i was arrested at that point it became the detectives and the prosecution having to justify that very drastic action of arresting and accusing somebody and claiming that the case was closed and so having to sort of right. fall back and and rally the troops and try to like perform and 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 prove a theory once the evidence came in and just like, sort of like force that theory through um but prior to that um much has been made about how i was reacting differently than say like Meredith's English friends or my other roommates even and I had a thought actually somewhat recently over this past year um, where it I feel like it somewhat helps explain to me also why I mean, a lot like I've had people say things to me like, well, it's also like a cultural thing, right? Like you're from a German family. You tend to be very stoic people. So you react to crises and drama in a very different way than like someone who's from a romantic um, culture like Italy, where it's very sort of outwardly expressive. And I think that that's part of it. That's certainly part of it. I do have the tendency in moments of crises and shock to get very like deer in headlights um, to just sort of like pause and like not be able to move. This actually happened in prison with like this almost riot that happened when another girl attacked another girl very near me. And I just sort of like I, I couldn't move like I I actually stopped moving and I and people were yelling at me to get out of the way and I just couldn't move. And just someone had to like pull me out. Yeah, I froze. I froze. Right. I read about why we do that and I forgot oh, why. Yeah. But I read I read a whole book yeah, about it. Yeah, fight, flight or freeze, I think. And yeah. that's like I freeze. But beyond that, I think the other thing that I realized this past year was there was a really big difference between me and my other roommate who was there to discover the crime scene with the cops. 
And the biggest difference was that Filomena, um, my Italian roommate, besides being an Italian woman, um, she saw inside Meredith's room and she saw the bloody crime scene. She oh saw God. Meredith's foot um, coming out from underneath the bedroom comforter. She saw the smeared blood on the walls. Like she saw in the very immediately everything that had happened and understood what what was what we were dealing with. And she from the very get go was very loud, very hysterical. Um, but meanwhile, I did not see into Meredith's room. And I was standing in the kitchen when they broke down her bedroom door. And so I never actually saw with my own eyes the crime scene, the gruesome reality of the situation. And so in those very early days, I didn't have the same kind of visceral reaction to this news that my roommate was dead that Philomena did. Um, And I think that if we're talking about like in those instants of first impressions when people and the cops are just arriving at the house and and taking and closing it off as a crime scene, like there was a noticeable noticeable difference between Philomena and I. But there was also a very innocent reason for that difference. And it had nothing to do with one person's involvement in a crime and another's not. It had everything to do with how much information the other person had access to. And I think that that's super interesting because they've also shown in studies of um, they look at like uh, biasing impact. Like now that I know all about wrongful convictions, personally, I've looked into a bunch of like research into wrongful convictions. And one of these interesting questions that people have um, is whether or not they should show juries um, crime scene footage in color or in black and white. Because what they've shown in studies is that based on the same kind of evidence, the same amount of evidence, the only difference being whether or not the crime scene footage is in color or in black and white, people are more prone to vote for guilt when they see crime scene footage in color. Because it just becomes this more like visceral reaction of wanting to attribute guilt to somebody because you are having that like emotional reaction to that color, you know, access to that image. Like it's it's almost like so real that the person like becomes um, biased. And um, but like if you give the same people the same evidence, the same information and just use a black and white photograph, they're much less likely to convict somebody, um, which is fascinating. Yeah. And, and so and you hadn't seen the visceral reality of the crime scene. But the other thing is like, so I remember at the time, because it was such a big story, hearing about it and everyone was saying, look, she's kissing her boyfriend and she, all this stuff. And then watching it back just the other day, I thought, what, I actually thought you looked incredibly sad. I, I thought like, I don't know how much, what do they want you to do? Like, and, and again, would they have asked a man in that situation to do that kind of, like they wanted you to do this histrionic kind of thing. You looked yeah. how I, th- I thought I would look like that. And maybe my partner might be trying to comfort me. And yeah. th- these were not, you weren't like, like, you know, passionately kissing. It was just, no, a, yeah. it was comforting that's what's one another. so annoying. Yeah. Like, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's something that my, my husband is constantly, like, we actually, um, uh, 
have a whole podcast episode of Labyrinths where we interview Malcolm Gladwell right. because he um, he also was like, oh, you know, Amanda just acts like a guilty person, even though she's innocent. And that's why people assumed that she was guilty. And it's like, honey, I think you didn't. I think you're just sort of casually absorbing the fact that people were going out of their way to depict me as guilty and they picked and chose moments and like the the picking and choosing of those three seconds of my life where Raffaele is sort of giving me a hug and pecking me on the lips to like give me like some little like comfort the the fact that like those images have been like zoomed in and in slow motion and on loop like they turn what is like a very casual not passionate moment into what as pornographically depicted as possible just to again confirm that feeling of like oh she was behaving inappropriately um and yeah i look back on all of that and like those are the three seconds of my life that are the most viewed the most um studied under the microscope um seen to be like the definitive finding like moment of my life of people observing my behavior and it's me getting a kiss from my boyfriend when i'm just standing there dazed and confused um yeah not annoying that your husband has to see that stuff so often as well <laughs> you know I don't, i've never seen my girlfriend kissing someone else in the past or present or future um, I wouldn't like it, but then I wouldn't like that she had to be in prison for years for something she didn't do as well. So yeah, I guess you it weigh, turns weigh out that. he cares more about that part. <laughs> yeah, goodness. okay, you, you're on to a winner. You've got a you've got a good guy. Then. Some guys might be jealous of that kind of thing. There's some really jealous people out there. I think I think yeah. Malcolm was just seeing what he maybe wanted to see because it, in that respect, because his book was all about that, so it just fitted uh, the narrative, didn't it? I read parts of that. Um, and it was really interesting because he talks about Friends, uh, the TV series, and how they overact, how how everybody is. It's almost like pantomime. It's like this really. Um, and, and so I guess he's trying. And I'm I'm writing a book at the moment about secrets and and whether you can tell if someone's keeping a secret. So it would have been an oh, interesting. Oh, cool. Yeah, like uh, I'm so curious. How do you like? What's what is that all about? <laughs> so you're, so you're <laughs> or is that journalist. giving it away? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's ever asked me a question back on this podcast. <laughs> well, that's so curious to me because like I, I, a part of me is intrigued because it's like, can you or is it also or is it just like the, um, you know, people who say that they can tell if someone's lying or not? And, it, you know, it turns out that all these techniques are all just sort of like it's a 50 50 shot if you can tell if someone's lying or not exactly. but people convince themselves that they can so I'm, I'm i'm honestly curious to know like how your research about that squares with that kind of i know that if you ha if you keep a secret that is related to your own identity and one that could ostracize you if it came out that's the worst kind of secret that you can keep and it can do a lot of physical damage to you it can cause oh. uh cancers and ulcers and all sorts of things really so, it can actually cause cancers yeah yeah apparently that's the no evidence they found. But, you know it, it causes a lot of stress though it's it's yeah and it's the, it's the going back and thinking about the secret rather than coming because you would think the stress comes from having to come up with elaborate like uh ruses and elaborate ways of uh um you know 
hiding what you did but it's actually just constantly it's just the the, the ruminating the thinking about it and stuff mm. but but with regards to that that bit the malcolm gladwell stuff yeah there, as you say there's there's like no evidence that anybody can tell just from looking at someone it's really interesting at the end of the amanda knox documentary you say i th- oh what is it i think i wrote it down i think you're trying to yeah i got wrote it down i'm not going to do your accent though oh i really want to but i'm not going to <laughs> wait do it do it i'd love to know how it comes okay, okay. across well it's just going to sound like any american in my head but that you know um <laughs> you're oh no because it won't be sick okay i'm going to try it anyway you're trying to find the answer in no right you're trying <laughs> you're trying to find the answer in my eyes when the answer is right over there you're looking at me why these are my eyes they're not objective evidence and as you said that I had been looking at your eyes the whole time going like but, you know and I knew that I knew like she she didn't do this but I'm also like looking at your eyes and you're yeah. so right it was like what am I doing this is ridiculous. what do I, I think I'm in some sort of movie and I'm like ch- checking from the eyes and they're going to show me that you did a murder or something ridiculous that's actually really interesting because our relationship with Docu- now that I'm now that I think about it, like our relationship with documentaries is mediated by a relationship first and foremost with movies where we expect people to be performing, performing characters and indicating through gestures or through their eyes some like under like underlying truth about their character and to be expecting that same thing when you are observing just real people who are talking directly to a camera is that is there anything to that that's super interesting i hadn't thought about that before well i think it's interesting like, i think about it like my girlfriend i've been with her seven years i see her like every day i know her probably uh, better than anyone knows her except for herself of course she knows herself pretty well but every day she'll do she'll react slightly different to how i expect her to right that's every mm. relationship everybody yeah. and that's the person you know the best in the world so we think we're going to like turn on a documentary and see amanda knox who we don't even know we never met and go well she's not reacting exactly how i'd expect her to it's like well what do we know <laughs> yeah fair enough Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Do you ever get over to the UK? Gosh, uh, no. Um, I am going to be talking later this week with the Manchester Innocence Project, but um, but I've never actually like. I think the one time that I've been in England was only at the airport on my way back from Italy, um, and a really nice person who worked for British Airways had um, managed to get me into 
a private room between planes that I think he said was reserved for royalty. Maybe, oh maybe, God, maybe, maybe that was just a nice thing that he said to me to make me feel special. Maybe it was safe, a joke. But... <laughs> Did it look nice? I mean, it was very comfortable and it was obviously private. So I was like, well, I'm I'm oh. feeling rather special right now. That's to... cool. I, I, honestly, it was so it was the exactly what I needed because the last thing I needed after being under the microscope and but also in weird isolation for four years was being suddenly thrust into a world full of people and uh, to this day I remain a little bit claustrophobic so like around big crowds of people um and so that was a very nice thoughtful thing for him to do I think you'd enjoy the UK because that sort of uh Germanic uh stoicism that you talked about I think that's that might fit in with Britain except the thing is and this was something I wanted to ask you about is like uh, as well did you notice this big difference in the way people reacted to you in the states and in the UK uh yes tremendously um although I don't know if that had to do um with cultural cues so much as uh potentially um just the the tribalism of like the the young woman who was murdered it was a british woman and the young woman who was accused was an american woman and um and i think that there was very much this sense um that i felt a lot from well maybe this isn't totally accurate because a lot of british people came to my defense as well um but like a lot of loud trolls on the internet um would say things like, you know, you should just be happy that you're alive because what happened to you isn't as bad as what happened to Meredith. And this like constant sort of comparison between what happened to her and what happened to me as if like one negates the other somehow. Um, And I've I've called this sense the single victim fallacy where you somebody fixates in their mind like there's a story and that story has to be very clear and concise and black and white, which means there has to be one clear victim and everyone else is not a victim if there is if that's the one victim. And it's like I have never at any point suggested that what happened to Meredith isn't the worst possible thing it could possibly happen and that I'm not the lucky one (laughs) to have survived. But that doesn't make what happened to me just a bowl full of cherries <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> well compared to um, compared to all the guys shouting horrible things at you on the internet you're definitely not the lucky one because they haven't spent years in prison ridiculous people i you know i i, I was at she was at, meredith i think was at U- leeds university that's that, right yeah i was there at the same time and also doing really? erasmus yeah um because she did erasmus i guess to go to italy and yeah. i was doing that in france at the time um, oh. So it really like was like a big thing for me, and all my my family were like, "Be safe!" And I was like, "At least yeah. in case like Amanda comes to get me or something in France oh. or whatever." Ridiculous. But but in England, it was sort of like a no. It was a fact that you did it, that you were the murderer. It was just like for for quite a few years, and I think still a lot of people listening might might have gone into this podcast episode thinking that. And it was only years later because obviously then I, I heard that and I thought, "Oh wow, that's interesting." I think she did that, and then got on with my life for a few yeah. years and then saw the documentary on Netflix and was like oh my god I was totally wrong and then any American I spoke to the whole time were like I can't you know they were they knew you hadn't done it 
but mm. British people, and that's the tribalism. And then you got in the documentary, you got Italians getting upset because Americans on like Fox News were saying, oh, well, you got to remember this is some backwater, horrible, stupid place. I know, and- <laughs> I know, as if that explained how wrongful convictions happen, which was like, <laughs> that was kind of racist of them, honestly. Like, it's not yeah. like it does, like as if it doesn't happen here in the US. Oh, like, yeah. no, <laughs> like, no, yeah. that's not but, why it happened. <laughs> but that prosecutor was, was particularly, do you, do you you think it was sort of sexist motivations the stuff he was saying about you being like immoral and and meredith was the opposite and that kind of thing yeah i definitely absolutely think that um misogyny had a huge role to play in the way that i was very casually vilified as a whore and depicted in this like dichotomous way against Meredith like me and Meredith actually had very similar interests we like to go dancing we like to have fun with friends we went to school and we studied and we you know we like to read like we we had a lot of similar interests and we were similar personality types um maybe she was like slightly quieter than me. I don't know like it and yet, like the way that we were depicted in court was as if we were exact opposites on this like spectrum of the ways that a woman can be. There was like the serious, pure, quiet, reserved, never had fun Meredith. And then there was the out of control, drug addled whore Amanda Knox. And the fact that that was so easily just like perfectly packaged by the prosecution and that everyone just accepted that as true even though no one there was no evidence of that whatsoever like that is where i feel misogyny had a huge role to play in this case that people just assumed assumed that these horrific absolutely untrue stereotypes had any role to play in this case of two real human beings um yeah it's in the same way that like if a if a cop just goes into court and refers to the defendant as a thug because they're a young black male and everyone's like oh yeah of course he's a thug he's a young black male like it's the same thing (laughs) so you know what i mean do do you and i feel like it's a it's a bit of a loaded question maybe an unfair question but i want to ask if you miss meredith um i guess like i have complicated feelings about her um, in the same way that like Raffaele has complicated feelings about me where I didn't actually know her very well. I didn't know her for a very long time. I know I knew her for, you know, weeks. That's how long I knew her. And we got along really well. Like I have these great memories of going and getting um, grocery shopping with her and having to tromp up this hill with these heavy water bottles or, um, you know, taking pictures of her in her room so that she could send pictures to her family. Or, um, you know, at a certain point, I was, um, I think I had very recently met Raffaele and um, I had asked I was like, oh, I think I want to wear a skirt, but it's too cold outside. And she was like, oh, I have some tights. Do you want to borrow some tights? Like, just like I have these like nice casual memories of her. But of course, like most of my memories of her are, well, not even of her. Like the conversation around her became a conversation around this horrific thing that she experienced. And I feel like 
you know, I've, I've felt bad about one of my initial thoughts after learning that she was murdered, which was, oh, my God, thank God that I wasn't murdered. Like, you know, one of my very, very first thoughts, I admit, was was not, oh, my God, poor Meredith. It was, oh, my God, I could be dead. And I. And I, I, I don't I can't really explain that except for it was the instinctual thing that came to mind. Um, yeah. I'd have thought the same thing. Everyone would have. Anyone who says they wouldn't have is lying. And I remember that, like, in those days before that I was I was arrested, um, I was making plans with Philomena and Laura, our Meredith's other two roommates, um, to meet with her family when they arrived and talk to them. I don't even know what we like what we could say other than like, Meredith was really nice to us and we're so sorry and we can't believe this happened. And I mean, those days leading up to my arrest were very, very confusing because as far as we knew, there might be a serial killer on the loose. It might be someone who was targeting our house specifically and who was going after us or who was wandering around just walking into people's houses, murdering them. Like we had no idea. Like at at no point did it make sense that like someone who was mad at Meredith reacted this way. Like no one was mad at Meredith. Like Meredith didn't do anything. Like she, the, in no way did she like have what happened to her coming to her in any like even sort of indirect s- fucked up way. Like it was so out of the blue and so surreal for that reason. Like I could not as much as I racked my brain, think of why this had happened to her. And, you know, to this day, it still feels very surreal to me. And also very surreal that, like, I'm not dead right now. Because if I hadn't met Raffaele five days before that, I would have been home that night. And I either would have been killed alongside Meredith or maybe Rudy Gaudet wouldn't have broken into our home because he would have seen lights on and heard us talking or what, like, I don't know. And it's, I don't know, it's kind of like a weird, I don't know if I even answered your question, how I feel about Meredith. I I feel like um, she's the girl who died and I'm the girl who lived. And in a weird way, we're, like a single coin and I'm on one side and she's on another and what happened to her very well could have happened to me and what happened to me could very well have happened to her um and then of course like now just now I I've become a mom and I'm for the first time thinking about what it would feel like to be Meredith's mom and to lose a daughter that way and or to be my mom and to almost lose a daughter that way the whole thing is fucked up and there's no getting meredith back and there's no getting those years of my life back and everything has changed um bleh, sorry i'm rambling you're not rambling it's, very, it's a, a remarkably concise ramble. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> do you um, 
would you like to reach out to her her mother? I, I guess she doesn't want anything to do with any of it, right? So um, if the people who I've talked to are trustworthy, um, Meredith's family knows that I I would like to reach out to them and talk to them and grieve with them. Um, but I have not reached out to them directly. Um, I've done so indirectly in part because I know that how if they're not ready to have a conversation with me, how shocking it would be to like get an answer, like a an email from me even like the most indirect, direct way possible, an email. Like, I don't think that they would feel comfortable with me knowing what their email address is. <laughs> like, I, I don't, like, and until I know that they would not be traumatized by me reaching out directly to them, I have let them know through through people who I know to be in contact with them that I want to talk to them. Um and so far, I haven't received a response, but I also don't want people to, I don't want, I, I, I really hesitate to even answer these questions. And I almost feel bad now that I've said this much already because I don't want them to feel like they, it, they're they on my timeline to talk to me. Um, they're, have as, they've, they have a, a tremendous grief and loss and trauma to deal with as well. And I know that if I can't be a positive part of that for them yet, then then that's not my place to be. So. Mm. I don't. Th I don't think you've said anything uh, even remotely disrespectful. I think. I think it's you know you very carefully worded and, and everything you, you've said makes sense to me. Um, and as you say, I suppose it, it it changed a little bit how you looked back. I suppose from from both your own family's perspective and hers having having a daughter. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, she's actually out there crying. <laughs> so oh no! I think my, I think my husband is having a little bit of trouble juggling her at the moment. But I okay. think she's teething, yeah. so it's like nothing makes her happy right now. <laughs> oh no, the teething. Okay, do they have to bite stuff then? Like, is that? Yeah, weapons? yeah. I have these like little sort of. Um, they're these like training spoons that um, are a little bit gummy and have like little nubbins on them that she finds really satisfying to chew on. And it also sort of sort of teaches her how to stick a spoon in her mouth. So that's that's the strategy, at least. <laughs> how do you how do you make it just and I, I'll make this the last sort of proper question. Um, how do you how do you make it so she grows up and, and doesn't see you as sort of Amanda Knox, the stuff that happened to Amanda Knox rather than the stuff that Amanda Knox ha makes happen for herself in her life. What what do you want to do? I mean, I've been trying to do that even for myself for a long time. And now that I have a daughter, the pressure's on to really figure that out. Um, I think the way that I've been dealing with it is to, um, first of all, acknowledge that this is a part of my life, not pretend like it isn't and not pretend that it doesn't have a deep impact even to this day on how I can and am able and what uh, to navigate through the world and what kind of opportunities I have. So accepting that that is reality because that is reality. Um, and then knowing that, knowing that there are certain limitations and there are certain opportunities, doing what feels like is going to, feels like the best thing that I can do. 
like doing the best thing that you can do with whatever circumstances, wherever you are, that's the only thing that you can do. Whoever, like, no one chooses the circumstances that they grow up in. No one chooses the feelings that they have, the thoughts that they have, the the ideas that people have around them, the society they grow up in. All you can do is choose what you then do in that space with what you have. And I am attempting to do that, um, which means applying my perspective to other people's stories and trying to be helpful and trying to start conversations around um, institutions that so that we can improve them for the betterment of everyone. Um, But also like being willing to step away and to allow myself to just be the person who likes to listen to Weird Al at the end of the day and swing dance and sew Harry Potter costumes. Like, that's still me. <laughs> and I'm going to be doing a lot of that with her. So um, I don't know. I, I feel like as much as I'm allowing myself to be more than the worst thing that ever happened to me, I'm going to allow her to be as curious about it or not curious about it as she wants to be. That's very beautiful. And I, I love Harry Potter as well. So I like I like that too. <laughs> Who's your favorite character? I never even thought of that. Uh, well, you <laughs> it's obviously, so hard. You okay, what's your favorite Harry. book? What's your favorite book? Oh, you know what? I recently reread all of them in German as well. Um, I was going to show off about that at the beginning. What a nerd! I love it. Well, good job. Okay, cool. <laughs> I've read <laughs> them. That. I've read them four times in four different languages. <sighs> That's You're... nerdy, isn't it? That is a, that is fantastic. <laughs> I love yeah. that about you. What's your oh, favorite thank book? You. I could tell you my favorite translation is the French one because they change all the weird okay. w- all words to like uh, like. Snape oh, it's so funny becomes, words. He becomes rogue, as in like a villain. A, a oh, villain. interesting. Yeah, and Hogwarts is Poudlard. But uh, favorite book, I just think they got better as they went along because I beca- I got I grew with them because I was what, eleven. Yeah, well, we're about the same age. I yeah. think you're a bit a bit older. I'm thirty two. I'm thirty four. Yeah. Yeah, you're getting you're getting old. Um, I'll be there in two years. Though, so. <laughs> but yeah, um, they they're just brilliant, aren't they? So yeah, I think they got better as they went along for me because I was just so so. By the end, I was like reading through tears and then watching the mm-hmm. movies through tears at the end. What about you? I think um, my favorite book is everyone assumes it's the prisoner of azkaban because it's a wrongful conviction story but um actually (laughs) my favorite that is a great one um but my favorite one is the fifth book actually order of the phoenix and um a big reason for that is because that is that's when harry is really really struggling and it's when the world has very much turned against him and are falsely accusing him all the time and he's feeling isolated and vilified and alone and crazy and um then moody. moody um and impacted by this like deep darkness that um is just hurting him but that he rejects and that was a really, really beautiful metaphor for my struggle in prison, how I was just like struggling against feeling bitter and angry and, you know, feeling like absolutely 
abandoned and isolated and confused and um and like I couldn't count on the institutions and the people I thought I could count on like Harry's going through so much internal pain in Order of the Phoenix and um and I'm just I I feel so bad for him in that in that book and I just, I don't know I just a lot of people hate that book because of how dark it gets and I I sort of like in a rebellious way feel like that has to be my favorite book because it's willing it's like his darkest moment um I under, I respect that. That I I think all all my favorite art is dark stuff, mm. you know. Right, do you do you must you must find that with music and stuff then as well maybe. Or is it just this particular thing? Um well, like just like you, I grew up with the Harry Potter stories and then um so I sort of matured alongside him and then I weirdly had through this like crazy wrongful conviction experience access to emotions that the characters had access to that I didn't have access to before um, that continues to resonate with me and help me process. Um, but yeah, I, I, I feel like, you know, I, I grew up listening to heavy metal just as much as I was listening to Disney music. So I'm kind of across the board. Um, I also love humor though. Like I love making, I love just, Anything that um, interrogates the absurdity of life and fate and um, and finds levity in the gravity. Who's your favorite comedian or, or comedy film we can say as well? Mm, that's I don't know who hard. I'd say. Isn't it weird when people ask these questions, you suddenly can't think. You can't name a single comedian I ever. Know. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think well, of I can, one. <laughs> I can think of one that... Um, I've watched recently. It's not it's not my favorite because asking someone's favorite favorite, but like it is it's up there because it continuously makes me laugh. Um have you seen Pop Star Never Stop Never Stopping? I think I did. Is it that guy from Saturday Night Live? Yeah, it's the Lonely Island guy. Yes, um, yes, yes. And it's it's like it's <laughs> so stupid and so yeah. funny and I actually really like the music in it. So, I love musicals and it's basically like a hilarious musical. So, I'm into it. I did watch that. He's great. <laughs> Did, did you see those questions that you don't if you don't have time don't worry about it but you know those questions I sent some questions oh, oh you don't I have forgot to, but I'm conscious you might have to tend to your baby and stuff like that so yeah I might have to run and do do baby stuff but if you mm. want I could find the that list of questions and then email you my responses if that works for you no, don't worry about it don't worry about it I'll just I'll just say okay. Amanda was was too busy for you guys no I'll just say like I, you know <laughs> <laughs> they they know people. John Ronson. I didn't even ask him because I was just too. I was scared. He was like the only person that when I interviewed him, uh, it wasn't him that popped up in the Zoom. It was like a BBC person, and I was like, oh, oh, hello, oh, BBC dear. person. And then she was like, hi there. Uh, John's uh, going to be here in two minutes. Just want to make sure everything's. Okay. And I was like, fucking hell, <laughs> scared. I was so scared. And as you know, because you know John. You'll know yeah. that like, I, had, I had no reason to be scared, but I, I'm, no. I've been such a fan of his for so long. And he came in and as like as he came into the the three of us, 
thing, he was already going like, ho, 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 hello, hello. I know, I, I was, know. Isn't he fantastic? Oh, <laughs> I was so at ease. I've got to say, you're the same thing, you know? It was, it's was. it been such a pleasure talking to you because you also Aww. came in and were just like smiling from the get-go and so easy to talk to. And Aww. I know you must have done so many of these. So I, I really appreciate um, that, that, you know, being your helpfulness in, in the interview. Oh, of course. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, and yeah, I, I get the same vibe from John and don't feel bad that you were like fangirling because I, <laughs> I am not like a fangirl, but when I met John Ronson for the first time, yeah. I was sweating. I was like, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't talk. I was so embarrassing. Oh, <laughs> was, he was so nice about it too. So I, I always appreciate that about anyone. <laughs> What a pleasure it was to speak to Amanda Knox. In many senses, she's the perfect guest for this podcast. She's a big name, she's got a big heart, and her story has countless twists and turns, tragic moments and unique plot points, making her just right for On The Edge with Andrew Gold. Please do subscribe and share with friends. There was no bonus episode for patrons this week as Amanda understandably had to tend to her baby. Uh, You might have heard some faint crying noises during the episode. I will soon up the podcast to twice weekly, so we'll get at least one, maybe two bonuses per week uh, for those who sign up on Patreon, Apple, or YouTube. We didn't talk all that much about Meredith. I don't think it would be respectful to her family's wishes for privacy were we to do so. And I think it's clear now that Amanda and Meredith were two very different victims of the same crime. I don't think it's right that Amanda need refer to her or be compared in victimhood levels for her story to be heard. Of course, there's little worse in journalism than certainty. I wasn't there that night. I feel the evidence is compelling that Amanda had nothing to do with the murder. And for those unsure, I urge you to watch the Amanda Knox documentary on Netflix. I've designed and edited this podcast episode with that belief, and I take full responsibility if ever proved wrong. Uncertainty and doubt, I think, are integral to good journalism. And that was one of the huge problems at the time when everybody was so sure of her guilt. But I made a choice about how I wanted to do this, and I didn't want to grill and attack a woman who has already suffered so much for a crime that it's extremely unlikely she carried out. Thank you so much to all my listeners for sticking around, for enjoying this. Please tweet it, Instagram it, share it, TikTok it. I've never used a TikTok, but just, you know, TikTok it out there, Facebook it tell your friends about the amazing guests we've had and remember to subscribe as that boosts me in the ratings or something thanks uh, to my new patrons patrons pa- patrons patrons thank you to them i'm recording this quite far in advance so i'm a bit behind but thank you so much to barry jones it was lovely catching up with you on patreon messages i'm glad i'm able to accompany you on your runs and jennifer Jennifer, I hope you're enjoying the episodes without the ads. Jennifer made a great point that the ads can cut through the empathy in any given moment. I do try as hard as I can to choose moments where there's a slight lull or natural break in the discourse, but I know that ads are not ideal. 
but it's the only way I can make the podcast profitable. So I hope you understand. Still, thanks for signing up on Patreon, Jennifer. Um, on Apple, I can't see your names, but thank you all of you to signing up on there, all you newbies and the old bees as well. Thank you to you as well for sticking around. And next week, yes, oh, next week, Jordan Harbinger, one of the world's biggest podcasters who was kidnapped and used to do wiretapping as a child before the FBI got involved. He spied on his neighbors and then impersonated a young girl on the internet as a way to catch predators. What a life. That's next week. See you then. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.